Think back to when you were a little kid and you had to do something that you were afraid of. Maybe it was go down to the basement when it was dark. If one of your parents offered to go with you, was that reassuring? I think it was reassuring for most of us. Think about the first time that you tried to do something. Ride a bike, run a race, play a baseball game, whatever it might be. Having someone there encouraging you probably increased your confidence, right? Or perhaps a more... um, recent example for some of us, perhaps you had to do a difficult task at work, and the question of whether you really had the authority to do it was something that was big in your mind, and so it gave you confidence if you could for sure say, yes, this is what my boss wants me to do, this is what I've been told to do, and so I can confidently do it, Uh, it's not just something that I'm doing on my own authority. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we see God reassuring Paul of the work that he had called him to do, specifically in the city of Corinth. I think we see the uh, things leading up to that reassurance, even before God specifically states it to Paul, as we saw in verses 9 and 10. We see, first of all, the fact that God um, establishes Christian fellowship for Paul even before he gives them this, him this reassurance. When it says he found the Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, Pontus would have been on the northern edge of what is modern-day Turkey. So that's where he was from. He had been in Rome, in Italy, and now he was in Corinth, uh, south of Macedonia, in what would be now modern-day Greece. And so God orchestrated the steps of this particular couple, specifically, I think, so that they would be in Corinth at the right time to encourage Paul. Uh, Sometimes you run into people and you find out different um, uh, facts about maybe their occupation, their background, those sorts of things, and there is somewhat of a natural connection. We see that here because they were both employed in the same occupation. We say... Well, it seems strange that Paul would have a trade if he was a a Pharisee, a teacher, but apparently it was not uncommon for rabbis to support themselves with some sort of trade. Uh, Obviously, we have this idea of a, a pastor or a missionary who works a second job. Sometimes we call that tent making. That's taken from this passage, the idea of of doing a a separate work to support yourself. We have to ask ourselves, why was it necessary for Paul to support himself in this way? Aren't there Christians in Corinth? Aren't there people who are ministering to him in various ways? The book of 1 and 2 Corinthians, I think, explains that in further detail. Paul was concerned when he came to Corinth that there would not be a confusion about his motivation for ministering to them And so, rather than receiving support from either Jews or believers there in the city of Corinth, he chose to support himself, or as we'll see in the next few verses, he received support from other churches that he had previously established or been connected with. But we see, first of all, God's reassurance of Paul in bringing along this Christian couple at the right time 
to encourage him. We'll see them again later in uh, chapter 18 because they take an active role in discipling an energetic but perhaps ill-informed new believer named Apollos, who will also come up in the history of Corinth later on. Paul speaks of them in other places as fellow workers. These were people who, by seeming chance, ended up in the same place as Paul, but that over time he grew to have a relationship with, that he would consider them fellow laborers for the gospel. And so God, first of all, reassures Paul by bringing fellowship to him. He also reassures Paul uh, in verse 5 by bringing support from another church. Now, the verse doesn't specifically state this, but in the book of Philippians, Paul describes the fact that the church at Philippi gave him support on more than one occasion. And so their support is what's going to enable him to move from a part-time to a full-time ministry. We see in verse 4 that he is in the synagogue every Sabbath, and so his ministry seems to have been primarily restricted to just preaching on Saturdays on the Sabbath in the synagogue because of his need to support himself, as we saw in verse, in verse 3. And his goal in the synagogue to, was to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Corinth was obviously a um, city that would have had a Jewish population, but perhaps even in a greater sense, a Gentile population. And so Paul was seeking to minister to gr both groups of people. When Silas and Timothy, Paul's co-workers, come down and uh, join him in Macedonia, now he's freed up to be able to... Um, uh, devote his whole time to preaching the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. We last saw, saw Silas and Timothy in Acts chapter 17 and verse 14. They had uh, had to split up because of some of the persecution that had taken place there in Thessalonica, and so now they're rejoined, and so Paul not only receives further fellowship from his co-laborers, but also receives, it seems, this gift of support that enables him to have further ministry. So God encourages Paul through fellowship. God encourages Paul through support that enables him to be more involved in ministry. But as we've seen over and over again in the book of Acts, we see the opposition start to rise up. It says in verse 6, they resisted and blasphemed, which is fascinating on a variety of levels. The Jews were God's people. If anyone was going to accept the message, they should have been the ones to accept it. They had the law. They had the prophecies of the Messiah. They had all this truth about Jesus, and yet when he came, most of them rejected him. That's the resistance part. And then the blasphemy part was, is very interesting because these are the sorts of accusations that are consistently brought against both Christ himself and against his followers. Stephen was accused of blasphemy. Others in the early church were accused of blasphemy. And yet, who was it that was blaspheming? It was those who saw the Messiah in front of their very eyes and yet said that he's not the one from God. I think that this serves, perhaps, once again, as a warning to us. We can hear God's truth regularly. We could read the Bible every day. We can listen to preachers on the radio or, or read Christian blogs or all of these sorts of things. We have such availability of truth. And yet, having all of those things, if we yet turn away from Christ, there is, in a sense, a greater condemnation that falls on us. 
spoken of in the book of Hebrews. If you've had opportunity to see God's goodness and, and see God's power demonstrated and you still turn aside from it, what hope is there? But that was their response. Paul's message was simple. He said, Jesus is the Christ. And when he says Christ, in other places that would be the word Messiah, essentially Paul is saying to the Jews, here is the one that all of the Old Testament prophecies were pointing to, the one that God promised to send. He has been sent. Are you going to believe in him? Their response was no. Paul's act in verse 6, when he shakes out his garments and says, your blood be on your own heads, uh, both had the imagery of the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, the imagery of the watchman from Ezekiel, and the practice of Jesus and the apostles in the Gospels. Uh, first of all, this was a sign of God's judgment against a particular city, this shaking out of the garments, the dust being returned to the place. The imagery of the watchman in Ezekiel was, if there was someone who was appointed as a guard for the city, a lookout for the city, saw an enemy coming, said nothing, he was in some way guilty for those who ended up dying in the attack. But if he saw, and he warned, and they didn't listen to him, he had fulfilled his responsibility. Paul saying, Judgment is coming. We saw that in the previous chapter. God has appointed a day when he will judge the world through the man whom he has appointed. Paul says that judgment is coming through the very one that you saw. Jesus is the Christ. When they reject that, Paul said, I fulfilled my responsibility to warn you. If you perish in your unbelief, the responsibility falls back on you. This uh, shaking out of the clothes was something that Jesus told the disciples to do. If they went to a city and preached in that city and the city did not receive them, they were supposed to do this as a sign of God's judgment against that city. It says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, this going to the Gentiles was something Paul had said previously in Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 46 it was necessary the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now, what we read in Acts 13, we might think that that is a one-time event. Paul's done with the Jews, and now he's only going to preach to the Gentiles. But we see that's not the case. It seems that the progression is, Luke has specific incidents in which he highlights Paul's statement of judgment against the unbelief of many of the Jews that we see in the book of Acts, but that was seemingly a pronouncement for that specific city or that specific region because we see Paul's pattern continues through the book of Acts. He preaches in the synagogues as long as that's possible, and then he goes to the God-fearers and to the Gentiles. We go to verse 7, and it says, He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. This uh, is interesting. It's interesting because here's someone who would have been potentially looked down on by the Jews. He's a God-fearer. He's following the law as best he can, but not being a Jew, he can't follow it all the way. And yet Paul was taking the gospel message to him, associating in fellowship with him, which potentially would have stirred up the Jews even more. 
And the fact that his house was right next to the synagogue meant that Paul had been kicked out of the synagogue, but he was still having an opportunity to speak in very close proximity. What furthermore is interesting is what we see in verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Now, we're going to see a more than one person described as the leader of the synagogue, which raises the question, were there several leaders of the synagogue, or was it a succession? It seems that it was a succession, and that here's someone who had formerly rejected Christ, that Paul had pronounced this judgment against, who now has turned to Christ, expressed his confidence in Christ through being described as believed in the Lord with all his household, which has echoes certainly of what happened in Philippi. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so we see again this, this pattern continuing. People hear the message, some reject, some are hesitant, some receive it. And ironically, some of those who it seems formerly rejected later turn to it and express genuine conversion by uh, agreeing with the gospel and being baptized and thereby associating themselves with the church. And so, certainly this would have been something, I think, that would have infuriated the Jews. Here's one of our own number who has now turned and gone over and betrayed us. It's similar to the reaction that I think Paul often got because that was his own experience, right? Paul had been one who was heart and soul committed to the Pharisee cause of persecuting those who followed Christ. When he turned aside from that, they would not forgive that sort of betrayal. They would not accept him again. And now here's this man, Crispus, who has believed. What will their response be? We'll see that in just a moment, but I'd like to highlight for you that we see Crispus again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say, you are baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Now, some have then tried to say Crispus is either Gaius or Stephanus, as is uh, presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't know that we can specifically make that connection, but we see that this man, Crispus, was one who was a part of the synagogue, now a part of the early church, and someone Paul considers to be a genuine believer later when he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. But now we come to what I think is the key part of this passage, the vision that God sends to Paul. God speaks to Paul through a vision several times in the book of Acts. We remember back to his conversion, which was the, perhaps the most significant one in Paul's life regarding a message from God. Associated with that as well was the vision that God gave to Ananias to uh, go and, and uh, speak to Paul. We see this vision. We see an appearance of an angel of the Lord a few chapters later in the book when the ship is about to sink and God reassures Paul all will be kept alive. These visions, these appearances of God seem to come at key points. Uh, there's also the one where the man says, come over and help us in Macedonia. They seem to come at key transitional points in Paul's ministry. What's the difference that's going to take place in Corinth that has not yet happened in Paul's ministry? He's going to stay in Corinth a year and a half, which is the longest he stayed in any one place. 
Why is he able to do so? Well, Paul reassures, uh, God reassures Paul by saying, Do not be afraid. It's interesting that when God appears to people often in the Bible, that's how he starts out speaking to them. So what would our natural response be if we caught a glimpse of God's glory, however small? Fear, terror, I'm unworthy, all of these sorts of things. And so God starts out, do not be afraid. Much like he said this to Moses, much like he said it to Joshua, much like he said it to a number of other messengers who felt ill-prepared to do the task that God had called them to do. Do not be afraid. God in this phrase shows compassion and kindness toward flawed and imperfect servants. What is the command? Go on speaking and do not be silent. Go on speaking. Continue preaching the message of the gospel. Do not be silent, which I think is in response to the efforts of various groups over and over again to silence Paul. And so God is emphasizing to him, you must continue the ministry that I've set you on. You think back to Acts 9 when Paul is converted and what God says to Ananias. He's going to be a witness for me. He's going to go through much difficulty. But at least for this space, God said to Paul, I'm going to spare you from persecution. What are the assurances that God gives to Paul? I am with you. So think back down to uh, how we started thinking about this at the beginning of the message. You have to go do something that you're afraid to do. Having someone you trust and you know cares for you makes it a whole lot easier to do the thing that you need to do. I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. That was something that had happened a number of times in Paul's ministry up to this point. He's been beaten. He's been thrown out of the city. He's had any number of... He's been thrown in jail. He's had all, all sorts of opposition, even in recent chapters. No man will attack you in order to harm you. And then God gives the reason, for I have many people in this city. So we look at this, and it was something that benefited Paul, but it was also something that fulfilled God's plan. God's purpose was to save a number of people in Corinth. And it's interesting how the fulfillment of God's plan has additional benefits for those who are in the midst of it. Um, in a negative sense, you think back to Jonah. Jonah runs away to, from God. All of the people on the boat are going to sink. In a positive sense, you think about the people of Israel and various places that they went. God showed kindness to people in proximity to the nation of Israel or in proximity to believers in the early church that they did not deserve. It benefited his people, but it also benefited those uh, around him. And uh, we might speak of this to, in some extent as common grace. It says in the scriptures, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so God's kindness sort of has a spillover effect on even those who are his enemies. And we see God's patience in many cases when it is undeserved. God intended to save people in the city, and God's going to keep the promise that Paul will not be harmed, at least in the city of Corinth. And so that gives Paul both the confidence and the authority and the opportunity 
to do what it says in verse 11. He settled there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. Up to this point, Paul's ministry has been very much parked in a particular place for a few weeks or a month or something like that, sometimes even a shorter span of time, and then move on to the next place. But he's going to stay in Corinth for a year and a half. This is interesting because of all the churches that Paul ministered at, it seems the church at Corinth had the largest number of difficulties. Which, when it comes to thinking about a philosophy of ministry, we might say, well, the spending more time in a place to get it more established would be more effective. But then we look at all the issues that came up in the church at Corinth, and we say, well, I don't know that we can say that 100%. Because there were other churches, like the church at Philippi, that Paul was only at briefly, and look at how they poured their hearts and lives out to serve Paul. Look at how they uh, supported him through this gift that came with Silas and Timothy. Look at how they encouraged him and how he described that encouragement in the book of Philippians. And so what we would expect to happen is not always what would happen. God's timetable for accomplishing sanctification is not always the same as ours. But I think it's important to remember when we come to a book like Corinthians... It's easy for us to say well, that maybe they weren't even Christians at all. But Paul describes them as saints. God describes them here as, I have many people in this city. And so I think that that should encourage us that God is at work, even in the midst of the problems and the frustrations and the seeming slow growth that we might experience in our lives. Then we come to verse 12. We're going to see a somewhat new development which is the unwillingness of the Roman authorities to intervene in the persecution that the early church is facing. Verse 12, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. At this point, we should be having a little bit of a flashback, because where has this happened before? It happened in Christ. It happened with Stephen. Here's these accusations that here is someone who is doing something contrary to God and to his law. And yet, Paul is ready to give his defense. Verse 14, Gallio says to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, Look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And so this is something that by which God is fulfilling his promise because if the Roman authority had spoken out against Paul and his message, that would have greatly restricted his future ministry, both in Corinth and in other places. But their unwillingness to rule on it meant that it was not officially condemned at this point by the Roman authorities. But in this, they weren't taking the Jews' side nor Paul's side. They were just saying, go sort it out amongst yourselves. Verse 14, I think, is important to remember. Paul was ready to give a defense. If you were dragged before the court, about to be beaten or thrown in jail or potentially executed based on what you were going to say next, would you be ready to give a defense? Would you be ready to open your mouth? Just as an aside, if we're going to be ready for moments when we need to present the gospel, when do we get ready for those? Not in that moment, but before that moment, just as something to consider. 
Galio, uh, uh, the, the judgment seat is, is brought before there, and they say, nope, we're not going to listen to your case. And it says, verse 16, they, he drove them away from the judgment seat. 17 is an interesting response, but not one that we would necessarily be surprised by. They took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Raises a couple of questions. Who is Sosthenes? Who was beating him? And why didn't they step in and do anything about it? There's, there's two possible explanations of who is doing the beating. Uh, one is that it's Gentiles that are beating him. The other is that it's Jews that are beating him. And I think that that second is the more likely understanding because he just said, I'm not going to be involved in your own disputes. And if they are administering to him justice on the basis of him having violated their law in some way, the Romans had already said they're not going to get involved in their internal religious disputes. And so I think that's the most likely understanding. Well, then who is Sosthenes? Well, it says he's the leader of the synagogue. So again, either it was multiple leaders in that particular synagogue or it was sequential leaders in that synagogue. It seems perhaps likely that he was the successor to Crispus. They didn't want him to lead the synagogue anymore after he had trusted Christ. So now Sosthenes becomes the leader. What's fascinating about this is when you get to the, the book of 1 Corinthians, we see that it is from Paul. We see that it is from um, also Sosthenes, our brother. So it seems at the very least that they viewed Sosthenes as being sympathetic to Paul and to his cause, and for that they decided to beat him. It's possible by this point he's already heard the gospel message through Paul's ministry in this year and a half that Paul is ministering and has become converted. And so they say, well, we can't take it out on Paul because they're not going to back us. And because, as we remember God's promise to Paul behind the scenes, God wouldn't let them. And so they instead decide to take it out on Sosthenes, one who Paul still sees as a fellow companion when he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. It had to have been frustrating to these who are opposing Paul's message to see some from among their own number believing the gospel message. And yet in that we see God keeping his promise to Paul. I have many people in this city. No man will attack you to harm you. I am with you. And Paul is still confident to continue his ministry. As we see in verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul not only stays for the year and a half, but he stays for a number of additional days, even after this apparent threat by the Jews and potential threat by the Roman authorities. We see at the end of that, uh, in that verse, that he takes Priscilla and Aquila as his companions on this next journey. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Won't spend a lot of time on that, but essentially this probably would have been a kind of a Nazarite vow, thinking back to Numbers chapter 6, which uh, I think illustrates the point that Paul was not going out of his way to frustrate or uh, antagonize the Jews. There were times in which he still respected and followed his Jewish upbringing, but he also recognized that that was not essential to his salvation. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there, Aquila and Priscilla, 
Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So again, I am going from the Jews to the Gentiles was not a once-for-all pronouncement. It was for that specific city in Corinth because as soon as he comes to Ephesus, he preaches to the Jews again. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And so this is the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. And we see that particularly at the conclusion of it, God makes this promise, gives him profitable ministry, encourages him in a variety of ways before he even makes the promise. And we see God's hand going back to what he said at the very beginning of the book. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to make you my witnesses. The gospel is going to spread throughout the known world. And so over and over again, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in building the church. We see God keeping the promises that he has made we see that nothing is able to thwart the message of the gospel. What then does that have to do with us? God has not made to us a specific promise that says, live in Royal Oak and I will bless your ministry there. Live in all of the other places that we live. Nothing bad will happen to you, at least for this space of time and many people will be saved through your efforts. God has not made that specific promise to us. But what promises has he made to us? He has given us, first to the disciples, and then to us as those who come after, the authority to take the gospel and make disciples throughout the known world. Part of that promise is not that we will be spared from any harm. In fact, in several places in uh, the scriptures, it says that we will potentially face persecution as part of fulfilling that mission that God has given to us. But just like he said to Joshua and to Moses, don't be afraid. Just like he said to Paul, I'm with you. It says in the book of Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with us as we do his will. God has the authority and the presence to stand behind us as we do what he has called us to do so that should give us confidence that should give us hope that should give us uh, a sense of motivation not to be discouraged if the job takes a while paul was at corinth for a year and a half many of you have been connected with our church for much longer than a year and a half and there have been times that have been up there have been times that have been down God is faithful to work in and through his church. Do we have that hope? Do we have that confidence? Do we recognize that if God is at work among us, there is no opposition that can overcome God's purpose? So what's our job? To be faithful. To not lose hope. To continue to do the things God has called us to do. Sometimes God gives us times in which he spares us from difficulty, like he did with Paul. Sometimes God gives us time where we go through great difficulty, like we saw in the previous two chapters. Whatever our circumstances may be, God's purpose still stands, God works through his people, and God is pushing forward the spread of the gospel and the building of his church, and he's given us the opportunity to be a part of it. So will you be a part of it? Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the privilege to take the gospel to other people, the privilege to encourage fellow Christians to draw closer to you. You could have done it in a different way from our perspective. You could have sent mighty angels to proclaim the gospel in flames of fire and majestic, uh, wondrous sights. You could have uh, caused the process of change and growth to be a, like a, a one-time zap or a uh, relaxing process, but that's not the way that you set up all these things to work. You choose to use weak and flawed and um, imperfect voices to proclaim your gospel. You choose to change us to be like your son through a process that is less like a microwave and more like being in a, a rock tumbler, knocking all the sharp edges off and, and polishing us. Lord, we cannot claim to fully understand why you work the way that you work and yet we see that this is how you work. And so, Lord, help us to be wholeheartedly committed to participating in your work so that we would honor you. As we come now to remember your death on our behalf, we pray that we would do so with pure hearts and with um, solemn remembrance of the blessings that you have shown to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.